Thanks so much, Kev. And welcome everybody again. I'm so excited to begin a new chapter in the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to look at the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> I, one of my favorite <clears throat> pastoral books is called The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter, who was a Puritan. It was written years ago, <laughs> hundreds of years ago. And uh, it's a really good manual and good like peek into what it was like to live in a small, small community where everybody sort of walked to church. And this guy wrote a great, great treatise on how to be that loving people's pastor. Well, if I were to try to name the book of Hebrews, I wouldn't necessarily call it the reformed pastor. I'd probably call it the anxious pastor. And if you've been following along, the pastor that's writing to these people at this time is very, very, very anxious towards them. And the reason he is, is because he's very concerned about them having the ability to be able to enter into the presence of God, have a true communion with Jesus Christ. And so from the very first chapter, he tells us that this is the new way that God is going to speak to his people. It's no longer the law. It's no longer the prophets. It's his son. He is going to speak to us through Jesus Christ. But again, the Hebrews being very much ingrained into their old covenant mentality and being very much married to that concept of Moses being the Superman of their faith. Now this pastor is telling them, they're sort of getting a little drifty. Why? They were under persecution. They weren't quite understanding this whole connection between the old and the new covenant. And so some of them, although they were being Christian, they weren't truly converted. And so we talked about this over the past couple weeks. We talked about what is that true conversion and is it something you can lose? Because if you read the book of Hebrews, it's if you just take it strictly theologically, it really is a scary book. It really is an anxious pastor begging his people to take heed and listen while it is still called today. And so we talked about the salvation. Can it be lost? Absolutely not. But the key is not looking at God's side of it because God, he can't, you don't get unsaved from God. However, we can certainly, as we're taught in the Gospels, be, fall, fall short by drifting away in a spirit of unbelief with a deceitful, sinful heart, and that just grows exponentially. And so the, the bad thing is that this pastor, pastor is anxious, but the good thing is he's telling them there's still time. There's still today. And that's his key word, and he runs, he reflects us and echoes back towards the Old Testament. And it's today you have that opportunity. And as we're going to look at, this we too have the same opportunity today, like we started out. Today is the day that God has made. One of these todays is going to be the last today, either for all of us or for any of us here. 100 years from now, None of us are going to be here. It's a whole new group of people hopefully going to be in this church. So our todays can come any time. 
And that's what this pastor is urging these people to understand. And so one of the uh, things that I think is a good idea when you read the book of Hebrews is to put an E next to every time this writer gives an exhortation to the people. And we've seen a bunch of them so far. But in chapter 4, verse 1, I would say this, this very verse, verse is an E. This is an exhortation. And so let's jump into what he's actually worried about here. Because before he was worried about them drifting away. He was worried about them hearing the voice of God, but hardening their hearts. And he compares them to the people of Israel in the wilderness. And he says they were not able to enter into the promised land because of this unbelief. So verse uh, 1, chapter 4, Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, which it does, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter his rest. Now, anytime you see those caps, that's referring to the Old Testament. This is referring to Psalm 95 in the Old Testament, which he's been referring to now in our teaching for a couple weeks and in these past couple chapters, and he still continues to pull from that psalm, as we'll see. And so he said, uh, they're not going to enter my rest, although his works, God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. So he's saying here, there's a rest that was finished, but yet there's a rest that still remains. For he, God, has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, this is Genesis 1, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. It's right at the end of Genesis 1. And again, in, his past, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. And, and again, the passage he's, he's previously quoted, Psalm 95. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a day, a certain day, today, saying, through David, after so long a time as it has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest as <clears throat> uh, for, I'm sorry, for there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So that's a big chunk. We'll stop there because verse 11 is another therefore. So we'll take that next week. But here we go again. We have this pastor pleading with his people in every way, shape, or form to not miss this opportunity. Notice he doesn't say salvation. He says rest although it could apply to salvation. That's one thing about the Bible. I don't know about you, but have you ever read the Bible? Um, maybe you read it first and you were just like, yes, this is great, I get it. But then as you start to read the Bible, you get frustrated sometimes. I don't know about you. But there's these um, seemingly contradictory ideas in the Bible. 
You know, obviously the biggest one is God's sovereignty, meaning God is in control of every single thing. Nothing happens without his deliberate purpose and man's responsibility. We see this in the Bible. God saying, I'm going to say who I want, when I want, how I want. And him saying to man, you better repent, believe and follow me and hold on. And so it's seemingly contradictory, but it's really not when you look at the whole of Scripture. Well, that's not my point today. My point is, is that this idea of rest and works is another one of those dichotomies, one of those, those sort of like uh, seemingly contradictory things. So God, you want me to rest in Christ, but you also want me to work as well, to do things for Jesus? And he says, yes. <clears throat> now, in this passage, we are faced with three kinds of rest. And so my goal today is to ultimately show us from this text how we can continue, last last week, what was the key to our salvation? What's the key to our security and and, 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 um, hanging on, right? It was holding on to the assurance that you had at first all the way to the end. And so that assurance, that certainty comes from union with Christ. We hold on to him. And God then carries us through the trials, the tribulations, the sins, the stumbles. But we're still, we're unionized with Christ. Right? And so we see that there. And then we now have to see, well, how does that actually happen? How do we enter into this situation of being unionized with Christ? And finding true rest, not just eternal rest for after we die, but that eternal rest, your eternal life starts now, the day that you start believing and you should be living in rest with God. I should be living in rest with God, but we all know that this is not an easy thing to do. And so where is the, the, where is the, where is the, the, the line here? What do we do? Should we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and get busy and work, 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 work? Well, do that and you'll burn out. Or should we just lay back and do nothing and say, let go and let God? No, don't do that. God saved you for the world, not from the world. He doesn't want to take you and throw you in a corner somewhere. You are uniquely chosen by God not for this ultimate purpose where it seems like this felt need, like you're just going to be so happy, but you're ultimately chosen by God because you were created in his image, very different than everyone else. And that shows that that choosing is a valuable asset for the kingdom of God. So you are a valuable, unique asset in the kingdom of God. You were chosen by God. And you have to enter into that restful, secure position. But how? Now we see three rests here. But what my goal is, is to show you how they all dovetail together to give us the answer of how we are to enter this rest and really exactly what does that mean. So we see the the three rests. The first rest is that which Joshua gave the people. Okay, and so... Again, we read before that when Joshua and Caleb, along with the other spies, went into the promised land to scout out the land, they came back and said, yes, we'll go. But everybody else was scared. 
And so this is what he's referring to in verse two. He says, we have had the good news preached to us just as they did also the people in the wilderness. Right. And this was numbers 14, which we read up on the board before. They had the good news preached to them just as they are. We had it to us just as they did. But the word that they heard wasn't united with faith. So it didn't profit them. For we who have believed enter that rest because of just the opposite. You heard the word of God and you believed by faith. Thank you. Which actually is a gift from God as well. Now you have this faith and that faith connects you and unionizes you to God. And it also justifies you, declaring you innocent and righteous before the Lord. That's what happens when you become unionized with Christ. So he saves you, he gives you the faith, you believe, you're converted before that because your eyes are open, you're a new creature, and now you want to love God and you want to live for him and you want to get to and enter into that rest. Well, they didn't do that. Now, there's a very important thing to, to, to understand here. They didn't unite the word with faith. That's our responsibility. See, God, when he gives you something, he never gives you something just to throw it away and not use it. He doesn't give you something to bury it and hide it. He gives you something to use it. And that's the essence of Christianity. You become saved for a purpose. You live for God. You exercise that faith. You don't see him, but you move forward as if you did. You don't hear him, but you listen and do as if his voice was as loud as mine is right now in your ear. You you walk by faith. And they didn't do that. Why? Well, God said to them, he, the, when he says they had the good news preached to them, what was that good news? I am going to send you into the promised land. And you could also even trace it back to Abraham, because that's where the gospel was first preached, right? But maybe before that in the garden. But Abraham was the one whose seed was going to multiply out into the whole world where all the world will glorify God one day because of it. And so this Abraham, yeah, it started there. But ultimately what this writer's referring to is they were about, they got freed from Egypt. They're about to cross the promised land. And they say, no, I don't want to go in there. But here's the good news. God's delivered you. You're going to have be in a land of milk and honey. You're going to have peace and prosperity and protection. No, but there's big monsters over there, man. There's big, big, big guys there. They're too strong for us. Imagine that. <clears throat> Listen, Egypt, Pharaoh, wiped them out, right? Parted the Red Sea. You don't think I have this planned out? How I'm going to get you into Canaan? But you did not mix that word with faith. Is God truly among us? That was their sin. That's what it says in Psalm 95. Is God really here? I mean, come on, where is he at? He was, you know, sure that was God that let us go and it wasn't just the God, some other God or the gods of Egypt just sort of playing around with us. 
Well, that fume, God got fumed with that. He was upset. He was angry because they didn't trust. So they failed to enter into that land of Canaan. And they waited 40 years before they were able to enter in. God is patient, right? He's not going to be mocked. He's just. He made them wander. He made them wander. And then they decide to go into the land, but none of them that sinned against God with disbelief were able to enter other than the two that held on to their faith, Caleb and Joshua. They held on that whole time. They believed God. They were listening to God. All right, God, we'll go in. We'll take these people. Look at this fruit carrying big giant grapes on a stick and a vine, you know, like big prehistoric grapes and food and fruit. No, I'm just kidding. But it's, it's, it, this is what they found there. They were ready to go. God said, and they said, well, no, we're not doing it. And God thrashed them. And the next day they changed their mind. Okay, we'll go. And Moses is like, it's over, buddy. You've already messed up. We're wandering now. No, we're going to storm the gates. And they did. They went and tried to enter the land and they got wiped out. And so it's God's way, God's timing. Okay, that was what they were supposed to do, but they failed. They did not enter in. So there's a debate. Does this mean salvation, like eternally they didn't enter? I don't think so. Because salvation is not by works. From the Old Testament to the New, it's always by grace through faith. So did these people live a, a, like a life to God where they did not believe him at all? I don't know. But the writer wants us, he wants to use that episode that they were familiar with in the wilderness and say just how Joshua was trying to lead them into the physical promised land with physical rest from their enemies, you now, with the word of Christ, there's time for you to enter into his rest so that way you can have that eternal promised land when it comes. So he's comparing the two. And he's, it implies that there were some in this church, in this congregation, that were not going to enter in. They were fooling themselves that they were Christians. They were fooling themselves that they were walking with the Lord. They were doing the outside, but their heart wasn't right. They weren't holding on. And they weren't having that belief. You see, the unbelief, it says here they didn't enter in because of disobedience. <clears throat> but the disobedience in verse 6 doesn't necessarily mean a specific transgression. Their disobedience here is a different word in the Greek. It's um, apatheia, not parakoe. Now, parakoe is sinning against God, like specifically a sin. But the other one, okay, apatheia is what they're using here. It's obstinate opposition to God's plan. So it's not like I'm not doing anything necessarily specifically wrong. I'm just not doing anything. And then what happens when you stand still? You drift. Okay, so that's what their sin of disobedience was. And again, this is, you may say, wow, that's scary. I think it's beautiful because the one thing that God requires of us and the only thing that God requires of us to get this thing going, to enter into this rest is belief. Unbelief is what prevents you from getting into the presence of God. Nothing else, no other sin, 
Because he'll forgive you. You repent, you turn. But when you don't repent and turn from unbelief, you have nowhere else to go. Because there's only one way to God, and that's through believing in Jesus Christ. So the Israelites entering into the rest in Canaan is being compared with the believer's rest in their journey with Christ on earth, but also into that future eternal age of the resurrection, the new heavens, and the new earth. So Joshua's rest was a physical rest then and there by being in their own land. What he's talking about here for us is are we, and I hate to say it like this, are we going to go to heaven when we die? I hate to say it like that because it's not just heaven. Heaven to me is like just a bump in the road. That's not where I want to end up permanently. You wouldn't want to either. Heaven is God's presence. Yes, we want to be with him. But if you read Revelation 21 and 22, we see a new heavens and a new earth with resurrected bodies in the presence of God forever. Another physical, it's the same physical creation, but renewed without sin and perfect. That's our ultimate destination. And so in order to do that, you have to enter into the rest of God. And now, so the second rest that he talks about here is this Sabbath rest. And he goes back to that here. He says that there is a, you know, somebody spoke somewhere concerning the seven day in verse four. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, this is a very misunderstood concept. Okay, and so. A lot of times when we talk about believers entering into the rest of God, quote unquote rest, we get confused on what that means because we have a misunderstanding of it. It doesn't necessarily mean rest and relaxation. When Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest, he doesn't mean come to me and we'll just go cuddle up together and lie down. What does he say? He says, take my yoke. Now a yoke means work, but that work is easy and light. When you do it with him. So the, the, the concept of rest from God isn't that God in the beginning was so exhausted. He made the earth. He rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And now he's got to get back at it again. No, he rested finally. But the word rest, especially when you look at what it meant back then to these people during the time of uh, Israel, when Moses wrote this. When you look at some of the other cultures and even some of the exterior extra biblical writings, you see that rest, when it's associated with a ruler, any sort of royalty, it means rule. Rest means rule. You notice God sat down at his throne and rested. So that means he created the world and now he is sitting in the control room and he has already preordained the entire thing and he is going to rule and reign over it. And so he sets a reminder of this rest by giving us that seven day rest that, that, that uh, the, you know, the final day or the uh, six days, seven day rest, eighth day, new week. We remember that every single week, right? We remember the Sabbath. Israel was commanded to remember the Sabbath, right? Fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do no work. But the seventh is a day of Sabbath unto the Lord. 
This is to get them to remember and to point towards that future ultimate rest. And so <clears throat> the set, that, that, that commandment is about, it's a picture of rest in the age to come, which technically is breaking in to the present age, and that was to be experienced on that rest of that seven days from doing no work. But then when Christ came, he fulfilled that Sabbath rest. Okay, now I don't know what your view is on the Sabbath, what you believe to do on the Sabbath, not to do on the Sabbath. But I believe that the Sabbath is every day because we're fulfilled in Christ. We, it's fulfilled in Christ and we've entered his rest. And so every single day we are resting. And what do we do on that day? We do not try to mimic the seventh day rest from the Old Testament. There's no way we could do that. There's no way we could ever like, fulfill the law of the Sabbath now. It's impossible. The covenant's been fulfilled. However, we do get together not on Saturday like the Israelites did. We rest and get together on Sunday to celebrate the rest that we experience. And yes, it's good to take a day of week off, but it's also good in that rest to come. See, we're here to worship. We're not here to do any, this is our primary thing. We're come to worship Jesus Christ on Sunday. We're not coming to sneak up to the edge of the temple, sacrificial area where it says, beware, you know, we can't enter into the temple. We have to follow all the rules. No, this rest is like, come on in. Enter in, not keep away. And so you can have different convictions on that, and that's fine. But the point is that it's pointing to that future rest um, of that new age. It's pointing to God's rest in the temple. Again, he sits and rests and rules. And he takes up residence to rule over the ordered system that he had set up. Now, why is this important for us? It's very simple. When we enter into the rest of God, we are not just entering in to say, hey, no more problems, no more anything. I'm just going to be peaceful and relaxed. No, we've now become part. We, the, the Bible says that we're a kingdom of priests. We're now coming a part of that rule with Christ. And that's the whole idea of Adam in the garden. He was to go out and reflect God's glory into the world before he sinned. Christ reestablished that. He took that cracked mirror that we all were, where we couldn't properly reflect the image of God out into the world. And now he's fixed that. So we join alongside him with that rest. And so we have Joshua's rest, which is pointing the picture, making the comparison. And now we have the actual Sabbath rest of God that we are writing, we are sharing with him by sharing that rule. You know, when our presidents run for office and they get elected, they're not trying to get into the White House so they can sleep in the Lincoln bedroom or they can play with all the different things and look at all the secret things. No. What do they do? They go into the White House. They go into the Oval Office. They sit down and they rule the country. And that's the picture that God has given us with the rest. But there is more. There is, very, there is a lot more. And that is the future rest that all this pick, uh, points to. And that's the third mention of rest, is this remaining future rest. That is David talking about. He's, they're quoting Psalm 95. 
where it says, verse 9, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, right? For if Joshua had given them rest, going back to verse 8, he would not have spoken of another day after that. And he's responding to the today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts from Psalm 95. Now, when did David write that? He wrote that well long after the Jews had come out and went into the promised land. So he's not talking about that. He's saying there must be a future rest. It says, for the one who has entered his rest, the Sabbath rest that remains, has also rested from his works. He's paralleling this down now to this working out of our salvation, right? It is God who works in you to will and do for his good pleasure. It's a combo there, right? That dichotomy. And then he says, let us be diligent to enter that rest so no one will fall following the same example of what? Disobedience, unbelief. That's what this pastor is obsessed about. He's not trying to get them to look a certain way, dress a certain way, stop doing this sin, stop doing that sin. I'm sure he has a lot to say about that. But here he's saying, look, you must stop being an unbeliever. Well, what do you mean? I'm coming to church. I'm reading this letter. I'm doing what you're telling me to do. You are, but it's not coming from in the heart. It's not coming. You're not being unified with Christ. And so he's telling them that these three rests that he talked about are intimately connected. The day of rest once per week in Genesis 1 corresponds with God's full day of rest with his people at the end of creation. But the writer uses the inability of the people to enter the physical land of promise, referring back to Israel's time in the wilderness, to show them that they also can fail to enter that future eschatological rest that we all so much look forward to and desire. And so the only way for us to do this, to enter into the rest of God, to enter into Christ's rest, is to model Christ in his rest. Now, what did Jesus do? You see, there's more peel back the onion here. Look at Jesus. So what did he do on that Friday right before Easter? That's that sixth day of the week. He went to the cross. He went to the cross. He rested the seventh day in the grave. And the eighth day, he came out as the first born of that new creation, that first fruits, And he is the prototype now for that new creation. And so we must model that. Number one, go to the cross. There's no other way to achieve rest than death at the cross. Die to yourself. Stop trying to prop up yourself as some sort of Christian that maybe you're not yet. Throw yourself at the feet of God. This is what death is. Going to the cross means, Paul says that, I, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. And that, that's one thing that we have to hold on to, like we said, right? Um, we hold on and we focus on the cross. And that's number one. It's the gospel. It's not just knowing the gospel. It's believing with all of your heart that God had sent his son and he is the son of God. He's fully God. And he died for your sins, past, present, and future. And most importantly, he rose from the dead, defeating death and sin and evil, and he ascended to the throne 
royally enthroned at the right hand of God, what? Seated at the right hand of God, sitting in that ruling position. And so, yes, we have to believe the gospel. We have to also know our job. Again, now that we have this knowledge, okay, of rest means rule, there does come a lot of good things along with it, but we do have to make sure that we're moving forward with the calling that God has given us in our life. That's all that he wants you to do. He wants you to move forward with him. Now, he promises, see, this is the fringe benefits of entering into the rest, where sometimes we get it reversed. Well, I'm going to enter God's rest and I'm going to have peace. You will. I'm going to enter God's rest and I'm going to feel his presence. Oh, you will. I'm going to enter God's rest and I am not going to have to be concerned about my life anymore. I don't have to be concerned about being taken care of, being protected, or being anything happening to me outside of God's will. That's entering into God's rest. You are being welcomed into a mansion as somebody who wasn't able to even afford a place to live. And now you're brought in. That's the, 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 the rest of God. It's full participation with God in his rest. So we have that peace, satisfaction, contentment. We have communion with God. But it also means taking this that we have and reflecting it out into the world. Not inward. Not burying it and hiding. It's going out and being that light. Because that's what Israel was supposed to be in the Old Testament. They weren't that. They failed. We were supposed to be that. Adam. We failed. Jesus came and did it for us. So rest. Don't strive. Don't don't strive. Jesus said, you know, strive to enter into the narrow gate. Don't be fooled by the wide gate or the wide opening that's going to destruction. Don't be don't do that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is take this that God, what God has offered you and realize and put it into the context of this today. Can you say for sure that you are enjoying and you are in the rest of God? Can you honestly say that? If you can't, all you have to do is come to Christ and deal with him on that issue because he desires you to enter into that rest. He desires you to strive, stop striving with your works. Stop trying to be something that maybe you're not capable of being right now or you're not capable of doing or even maybe you're putting it on yourself. Trust the Lord. He is more trustworthy than any friend, family member that you have. And that's what he wants you to know. That's what the Israelites missed out on. This unbelief is God among us. So don't do that. Overcome that unbelief. Live a life in sync with God's intentions for you. That's being restful. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to help us with this. Father, we ask that you would help us to rest, Lord. We're programmed, God, to strive. And we beat ourselves up when we don't in all aspects of life. But help us, Lord, not to do that with you. Help us to take Christ as, as he is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we can depend upon him, Lord. We, we thank you for sending him. For, we thank you for um, having a rest for us. And most important, that future hope that we all share, Lord, that we will be 
successful through this journey that we're on. We'll have victory over sin and that we will, in the end, be able to look at you face to face in your new creation. And that's an exciting thing to think about, Lord. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So now what we're